Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I am Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, one of these rare times that we actually have a thing in the news that we have to pressingly talk about here as its timeliness. And that's that, I guess it's an injunction by the grand jury of Pennsylvania. I don't even think I have the technical terms right um, about the church. And basically what I gathered from it, mostly from the letter that the bishop read to all the congregations. Um, of course, it was written by Bishop Worrell, as I'm thinking this out loud, and he's in a different diocese than you. You might not be familiar with his letter. The long story short was, it was an acknowledgement that, you know, some bad things had happened, mostly before 1990, and that since then, they have internally fix their systems to the point of very little bad things have happened. And when something bad has happened, they have been quickly to rectify it. And that was the general gist I got. Again, the Bishop had written that letter and um, that was, that was about the last uh, piece of information I had. And I know that he said he was going to release some more information down the road since that, uh, that letter was released two weeks ago. And um, that's pretty much where where I wanted to lead us to start up for this and see where we go from there. Yeah, thanks, Joe. And I, I, I asked you to give me your knowledge and reactions before we started because uh, as we set out a, a theme for this podcast, it would be speaking to you, me speaking to you, and uh, recognizing that you represent a, a whole section of the Catholic faithful, and so I want to, if I, if I, I feel like if I can reach you, then I can, I'm reaching the right people, and not just uh, talking in an echo chamber or um, speaking to imaginary people that I don't really know. Now, in this particular issue, I'm in touch with a lot of people, mm-hmm. and people who are handling these, uh, these reports with varying degrees of understanding, of emotion, of suffering, of confusion, of uh, outrage, sadness, uh, fear, broken trust. I mean, there's uh, there's so much in all of this. And Bishop Zubik's point with his letter to that you heard on Sunday, uh, which was issued just a, a few days after the, I think, the the grand jury report from their investigation came out last Tuesday, and then letters were read this weekend at masses in a lot of uh, dioceses. I know that the the situation was addressed. I have a priest friend down in Savannah, Georgia, and the, uh, the, his pastor had required everybody preaching on the weekend to address it in some way. And so, it's uh, it has it has created uh, probably well an international stir. We just had a letter written by Pope Francis yesterday, mm-hmm. addressing all of the people of God in this present time as a result of several things that kind of come together, not simultaneously, but so closely in time, and, and that they're all kind of open wounds that are magnifying each other. And That would include the situation with the bishops in Chile that really opened up several months ago, there were accusations, and even by Pope Francis were initially dismissed as misunderstandings. And then his uh, advisor, 
a close friend, Archbishop Shakluna, looks more deeply into these things on his behalf. Uh, Archbishop Shakluna works for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and is responsible for matters dealing with the protection of minors in the church and looking into some of these issues and discovered that, no, in fact, the situation in Chile is pretty bad and and uh, has not been dealt with effectively, adequately in, in any sense by the bishops in Chile. So there's that situation and then uh, a lot of the uh, news about Archbishop Theodore McCarrick has emerged in the last uh, month or two. And the fact that for a long time, he has been having uh, relations with seminarians and one person was under 18 and that's eventually what surfaced. But then it turns out that people have been reporting him, complaining about him. Uh, reports have reached the Vatican. The, there's been a lot of effort to address it and people that had the courage to come forward because being a very powerful person in the church, it's with a, a real risk to one's personal uh, whatever. I mean, being a seminarian and complaining about the archbishop, uh, you can suffer a lot, of, a lot of consequences from that. So in the face of all of that, nothing was done. He was continually moved up from... Bishop of Metuchen to Archbishop of Newark to Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, and it's horrendous. Mm -hmm. So that, that situation emerged. And then in the midst of all of that, the report by the grand jury about what's happened in the church in the dioceses of Pennsylvania over the last 70 years mm -hmm. also was presented. And one of the points that Bishop Zubik wants to make, which I think is really important, is that a large majority of the report occurred before 1990. Mm -hmm. And since the Boston Globe uh, spotlight, whatever happened in 2002, the bishops made serious changes in all of the avenues for reporting sexual abuse, for caring for for children in the church uh, so that anybody who's volunteering in the church is getting background checks and is going through training sessions about how to spot abusers. Uh, the Our whole practice of the way that we are with children, so no adult is ever alone with a child in the context of the church except the children's own parents. Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise, no volunteer, no priest, nobody's ever alone with children. We've really raised awareness. We've done a tremendous amount to change the practices, and we've continued to refine those. In 2011, that was refined, and also this year in 2018, that was refined. And so Bishop Zubik certainly wanted to make the point that this is not late-breaking news in the sense that, you know, the majority or, or hardly any of these cases have occurred in the last 16 years. We really have made huge strides to protect children in the church in the last 16 years, which is so important. So what is new in the current moment and what is being stimulated now by this series of events, all of the ones that I mentioned, is that a, a focus is being made on what happens when, in the case of, Card of Archbishop McCarrick, what happens when the 
Bishop himself is the abuser. Mm-hmm. How do you report that? In the 2002 protocol, the bishops were essentially left out. And there are various reasons for that. It wasn't simply a power play, and they weren't bad men, and they weren't doing bad things. So I don't want to imply that at all. There were various reasons that those things were left out, but that was a major hole that was unaddressed. That are there safe, transparent, accountable ways to report a bishop who is an abuser? The second thing that comes out is that unlike in Boston, where there was basically one uh, prelate involved, Cardinal Law was the kind of responsible one who was who was singled out and the process of moving priests and things like that, which again is not because he's an evil man or was you know j- just trying to harm more children or something like that that wasn't the purpose, but there was a way of dealing with things that the church was protecting her own that there were uh practices of uh, I don't know, a certain kind of, of clericalism that was not just turning over criminals to the law. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and the law was complicit with that in some cases because the law also wanted to protect priests. And Anyway, it's a different culture. I don't want to go too much into that, but the point is there was really only one bishop who was the focus of that 2002, those horrendous reports of priests that had abused so many children, broken so much trust over so many years, and those responsible for them failed in a huge way to do anything about it until the pressures of the secular press and the secular consequences and the the secular courts and a lot of other things stepped in to do something about it. But now with this grand jury report in Pennsylvania, one of the things that we see is that a whole lot of bishops over a whole lot of years have handled this in an inadequate way, some in a terrible way, a a, a reprehensible way, some doing their best, but also continuing the culture of kind of the church protecting her own and putting the priests over the children and putting their own interests over those of innocent victims and making it an environment that it's difficult to report and so so one of the things that's really emerging from this, and again, I'm speaking very carefully because I'm not pointing fingers at any particular person, mm-hmm. and I appreciate so much, I mean, people like Bishop Zubik, who has just given his whole heart. I mean, just I love that man in so many ways, and, and uh, most of the other bishops have been installed. He's the only one who's named in the report who's still uh, active in Pennsylvania. The other bishops have kind of grown up in a different culture and are addressing this in better ways. But one of the things that the church is doing now, and under the leadership of the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Cardinal DiNardo, is to look seriously at the culture which has allowed this to continue for so many decades with such inadequate treatment and putting processes in place that, whether it's a bishop who is an abuser or a bishop who is not dealing with things properly, that that will be addressed now through uh, a process, the same kind of thing that they did in 2002 to address things at the parish level, at the level of the priest, they're now putting in place to address at the level of the bishop, both in his responsibility to take care of the children, 
and also in, in his own accountability and transparency in ways that he may need to be disciplined. And so that's, that's really uh, a significant part of this, uh, the, the fruits of this grand jury investigation. Okay, so, so that's good starting information. So where I come from on this, and hopefully it still puts me in the majority, uh, is I come from it from looking at it more as, as I guess this is the, the business side of me coming out, as a company structure more so than the faith. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's a, it's a flow chart. Your Pope's the highest one in charge, then comes your bishops, then comes, you know, your priest, essentially. And for the longest time, I only thought that there was those three rings. You know, the highest one being the Pope, and then the bishops, and then, then your everyday priest. And if you compare that to something like any given bank out there, you'll have like 500 rings. You'll have the highest, the highest CEO, then, you know, all the way down to where you have a branch manager, then all your tellers, and it'll be all spread out. And the vast reasoning for that is because it's a very general role, regardless of how good of a manager you are, you really can't handle more than six people. Um, to give everyone the adequate amount of attention that they deserve, you can't really have more than six. You should be handled at least four, but you can't have more than six. Um, in fact, actually, that's the same model that the Navy SEALs use. Um, so whenever taking the other shits going on in Pittsburgh, the, the churches started going through their restructuring is whenever I had a chance to start seeing about how the, the management of our particular diocese, the diocese of Pittsburgh, was broken down. And I learned that there's actually a lot more layers than just priest, bishop, and pope. There's they, they call them the vicars of the cluster, or at least that's what they're creating, to be able to give more, uh, you know, more, basically more people on its chain up a ladder. And the reason I bring that up in light of what you just told me is because the more individual checks you have, the less of a gap you have between the rings. So you have essentially one person in charge of 50 people, and then the next person above him is in charge of another 50 people. You, as that middle management person, has a lot more pressure to make your house look in order because of the natural fact that there's such a big gap in terms of oversight. Now, granted, this is a very general business answer. I'll get to the, the church component there. But that was was the impression that I had. And as a result, it opens itself up to much more possibilities of individual motives coming through flat out missing things of the people that you're overseeing because you're overseeing so many people you can't fully dedicate the amount of time to all of them individually and as well as you know the same with the same problem is with the person above you so that they can't fully go through the whole whole chain of command so that's was the business side of it the whole time going through this 
that, that I had come from. Um, now, living in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, as Bishop Zubik came through, um, and Bishop Rule for that matter, I remember some structural things, particularly to this issue, that were implemented. I remember being a Eucharistic minister and having to go through this extra reapplying training stuff that, that we did. Uh, well, by the time I was of age four, it was about the late 2000s, but we had to go through these courses and all of that stuff to become a, a certified volunteer was, I believe, the technical term. I might be wrong on that. But the, the core concept is that that they had addressed the problem and, and added some structure. And as I started to see about how the new restructuring is going here, that there there's just a lot more. And I understand that the nature of being a priest um, varies from person to person. You know, there, there's some that stay in their rectory the whole time. There's some that bounce around from hospitals and, and other buildings, other churches, and, and that there's no set one job description if you just say, what does a Roman Catholic priest do? You know, I can think of my local priest at my parish. He has a completely different day of events than I imagine you would over at uh, at St. Vincent. So to, to generalize it, I think is a very bad problem. Then to look at this particular report saying that, yes, there were a lot of problems, but somewhere along the line, something had to change. I don't know exactly what happened in 1990. I was very young at that point. But obviously something structural changed. And it had to have gotten better because it didn't go back. Now, was it perfect? No. But was it better? Yes. So I, I think that overall, the the way that from a business perspective, I, I, I look at it as they didn't bury the same, they didn't bury it completely. It to me actually seems as if it's something that it was attempted to fix. They saw results get better and then moved, then moved on to what the next biggest fire was when they saw the improvement. Um, I mean, I know myself as my business, I'm the exact same way. Now, granted, thankfully, I don't have anything this problemsome as far as the fires, but. Um, when, when I have a, a problem, we go at it, we dive into it, we spend significant time and energy to figure out how to fix it. We start seeing results from it. We turn to another problem that exists. Part of that is life. You know, you never have anything being constant, consistent. You know, that doesn't exist. You can be consistent as you want, but everything's always changing. So. My perspective and thoughts of it were they tried, they had to go in the right direction, and then something else came up, you know, and, and that could be a billion things over from the span of 1990 to, to now, um, but that's that was kind of my taking it from a, from a management side of the fence, looking at it as an adult. Now, that being said, I can surely see that I'm in the minority in that thought process because the majority of people out there are not having the mindset of managers and owners. That being said, I don't think that it's exactly a minute percentage either. I think that some people, when you actually sit down 
and looks as the facts that yes, there's there was some attempts. Now, as far as them writing the report and the rules and not including essentially the other management tier, in this case the bishops, I guess I also see that too because in general, whenever you're writing rules for your employees, you don't include the management. You include the the people beneath you as, as a very general role for effectively every business. So I get that. Um, obviously it's something that needs to be addressed because the church is not a business, but that is still does have some parallels to the business structure. So that is, as I said, going through it, kind of my takeaway on it. I know I answer a lot longer than I normally do in, in one of my responses there. So I apologize for that, but that's the overall, my perspective on it as far as where it came from. Yeah, and I and I think you know, the, in the people that I talk to, uh, people who trust priests and people who trust bishops, and people who have young children, and who read about the accounts in this report of really horrific things. I mean, really, really so sick that I, I think part of what prevented some of them from being dealt with earlier is that they're unimaginable. Mm-hmm. And people thought, you know, sh- surely that's not, there must be something. And then, I, you know, I think even just denial setting in, not wanting to face some of that stuff. I mean, it's really sick. But that's a real reaction, too, that whenever you have um, something that's brought at you that's so over the top, that's even if it's real, to just not believe it and to put it away. Um you know that's that's a person react. That's a human reaction. Um, you know, you you see funerals a whole lot more often than I do. I'm sure you've seen um, some very untimely deaths and people being in denial that their brother or friend's gone. Um, now, granted, this is is a different cause of trauma, but effectively, it's trauma nonetheless, just on a different avenue. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I that that was me understanding how yeah. that that could happen. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, looking at at these reports, and then the, uh, there's a there's a justified anger, there's a real outrage that this evil has taken place. Sure. Yeah. And then we we rightfully ask, what, where were the shepherds? Where were they? Why, why, how could they, how could they hear these reports and do nothing or, or act inadequately? How could they not immediately seek to eliminate the scourge from the church? How could they tolerate this? And that, that anger is understandable and justified. Sure. Yeah. And, and again, I, you know, I, I put all these things in, in perspective and I, I know some of the shepherds and I know where their hearts are and, you know, I, I want to, I also want to protect the shepherds and I can identify and those kinds of things. But I also hear, I hear those who are victimized or those who love them or those who are afraid. Like, you know, if the shepherds aren't protecting those children, how are they going to protect my children? And, and how could this possibly happen? Because the thing that we have, you know, I, I can, I also want to 
put these things in perspective, as Bishop Zubik did in his press conference, you know, we can look at bus drivers and teachers and coaches and Boy Scout leaders and Protestant ministers, and this is by no means unique to the Catholic Church. But I also want to uphold people's intuition that a priest, even above all those other people, ought to be the most trustworthy, the most trustworthy, only exceeded by the bishops. That's rightfully the expectation that we have. That's what we have built up. That's what God asks of us. And so how do we ensure that our priests and our bishops are the most trustworthy? And together with them, the lay faithful who work with them and represent them, our, you know, our volunteers, our extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, our catechists, and our, you know, all the people in the church ought to be the most trustworthy. And so, although we can rightfully make the comparisons, I mean, I, I just shudder to think of what the grand jury report would be for the teachers of Pennsylvania, because it would be in number and in, in detail more gruesome. Forgive me for saying no, it, uh, that, that That is true. And, and that perspective thing, I think, is something that, as a nation, we just lack. Um, I'll give you an example, going to be off topic. But growing up, my mom was obsessed with that ID channel, the one where pretty much um, they, they talk about the small town things that happen in real life, mostly unsolved murders and stuff. But the one thing that they always left out was the perspective. And their, the perspective was that, A, this is incredibly rare relative to the population. The likelihood of this ever happening to you is about the same as getting struck by lightning. And... That was one of the things that the bishop points out. But because the the event is so horrible, it, it strikes everyone's fear core, as it should. But the vast majority of the priests out there are not doing any of this stuff. Um, and, and that's that's a, the, the truth. So, But when you hear about something bad... When you, especially when you add in that extra element that you just mentioned that the priests are supposed to be the safest, that any single mess up is going to be magnified that much more, essentially because of the nature of, of, of them being priests. You know, it's uh, it's just the way it is. You see that, you know, you brought up teachers. I think of the one that just happened over in a local high school at the beginning of August some football coach that was 26 year old got arrested for being with a bunch of seniors. Um, that's obviously a problem and not a good thing. Uh, but that's more easily dismissed as a human psyche because he's a football coach and that's, you know, he's expected to be a mess, you know, yelling at people and not exactly a man of virtue by nature or a priest is expected to be the pinnacle of virtue and therefore, any slip up there is a real denial of trust, and the expectation is the exact opposite. So, yeah, by no means am I trying to to dismiss it, dismiss it. And on the other hand, I can see why, for the vast majority of time, you know, priests and bishops wouldn't be even taught about this because this is so in that same vein, the pillar opposite of. You're training, you know, if you're training someone to become a priest, 
you would be talking about you know the virtues of Christ and and living a life of God and how to teach that. Um, I don't know how much of your teaching back in the day before this became a, a public problem would have been about identifying a problem that shouldn't be anywhere near your radar. You know, um, an example I give or can think of here is there would be no reason to teach a 14-year-old boy about how to give birth. It's so foreign to what his life will be. Why would you waste your time and energy on that? Well, you need to go out and teach him how to be a responsible man, how to hold a job, how to do an interview, how to be a better student, stuff like that. So it just seems so foreign. And then again, that's that's the why I understand the outrage and the anger and the sadness and the betrayal. I understand all of that. But again, with the perspectivism of it being that part of the reason that it's remembered is because it's so rare and so horrific. Um, and the fact is that it's not commonplace. So that's part of, um, part of, you know, on, on your issue of perspective. Absolutely. No, and I, I appreciate your comments on that. And I appreciate talking with you about this as well, for the same reason I said, when we started the podcast that hearing how you're processing it, I think is really helpful. There's, it's too easy for clergy to become an echo chamber and mm-hmm. you know, the, the, to have the dialogue is, is really useful. So I appreciate all your comments as uh, in the course of our podcast. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's part of why we do this. Normally it's the other way around, but, but nonetheless, yeah. I mean, like it doesn't mean that the whole company is failing or bad. No, in this case, we're back in the church, but it doesn't mean that its whole mission is wrong or that the vast majority of people in it are wrong. It's, it's a human nature of a to not to, to just be thrown off. You know, I I've worked with this guy and, and you know, it, it, this can be, it doesn't need to be as to the extreme as it was, but you know, I, I've worked with a guy for, for 20 years. You know, I would never believe that he, he'd, he'd go home and hit his wife, let alone to find out he's been doing it essentially without any of us being able to tell for 10 years. And you would feel, the same way as shock, like, whoa, I, I didn't know Jim would do that type thing. And, you know, there, there is a natural element of, of self-wrongness to it. Like, why didn't I see that? Why didn't I know about it? Why didn't I do anything about it? And then there's a whole other element of, you know, courage or, or whatever to, to push it up the chain. So maybe I used the wrong example. Maybe embezzlement would be a better example that, you know, you're, you're taking money from a company he's been doing it for years you didn't know about it but then you found out about it and then it takes courage to essentially discipline your friend and also to to tell people that you messed up as well by not by not catching it so i i I see all of the sides of it and i'm not trying to justify it or or correct it i'm just trying to essentially be from a perspective of, of I could see how this would happen. And I can also see the reason it happens is because of how incredibly rare it is. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to be going out looking for something that isn't going to prevalently be found. You know, at the end of the day, if you want to go find landmines, you're not going to go look in Texas. You're going to go look in Afghanistan. 
And if you're going to go look for problems, you know, the, looking inside the ranks of other priests wouldn't be a logical place to, to go for. And that was my kind of perspective with all of this is that, you know, if something did happen, there needs to be channels to correct it. It seems that from the bishop's comments that those are either created or in the process of being created. And that that, while being a giant problem, at least has a pathway to a better outcome. And it also seems that now that there's going to be much more emphasis on prevention in the future. Um, but just as an outsider, I'd like to hope that that emphasis on prevention doesn't take away from the core mission of why priests are here and, and what you are. Because at the end of the day, you only have so much time in your life. You can either spend it on one thing or the other. And, and I, I'd hope that while this horrible negative needs to have some time addressed to it to keep it from happening again, it doesn't overshadow all of the good and the positive that comes from being a priest and the faith therein. So that's and, my and, thought moving forward on it. And I know that we need to wrap this up I, just yeah. to, to make a, you know, a kind of final comment, uh, you know, part of, part of the problem that Pope Francis addressed is uh, a culture of turning priesthood into a comfortable bachelorism, turning the episcopacy into uh, a kind of worldly power position, and the culture, and, and together we call that clericalism, where the priest and the bishop are kind of untouchable, held on a pedestal, and accountable to no one, and they protect each other and protect their own and that they are sort of set apart in a way that is uh, that they do no wrong and that, uh, you know, nobody else is responsible for anything and, and, and that they are anyway. So addressing that culture and the remnants of that culture uh, so that the priests and the bishops are actually focused on the mission of the church are actually focused on the spiritual service and the care of the faithful. I mean, Jesus says that those, you know, the Gentiles lorded over them, but among you it will not be the case. You are to be the servant, and the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And really turning priesthood and episcopacy into what Jesus called it to be, a service to all that we are not the ones who lord it over you. We are the ones who are called to serve you. And that's what Pope Francis has been trying to reestablish. And that's hopefully will be one of the good fruits that comes out of this kind of next wave of revelation. Yeah. And in reading about Pope Francis, it seems that there's no one more qualified to give that message. Um, just his upbringing, how he's got there. So seems to be the, the right person. And also there's nothing ever worse than two people with all the power holding it out and protecting each other. That always leads to bad stuff. Amen. Uh, so that, that's a problem. So obviously this wasn't the uh, happiest episode ever, but nonetheless, <laughs> not one that we felt that we absolutely needed to do. Uh, we will be with you here next week and uh, we'll talk to you then. Have a great week, everyone. And we'll go from there.